Good morning. Go ahead, open up your Bibles to James chapter 3. And as most of you know, uh, uh, someone earlier mentioned, they knew that I was preaching because we're going through James. And uh, I think what they meant was that most of you know how I decide what passage to preach on on a Sunday. And it's whatever passage we're going through in the youth ministry. And so we are going through James verse by verse. And the only reason I mention it again today is because I felt it was really ironic. Uh, Pastor Andy let me know that I would be preaching uh, a few weeks ago. So I went ahead, looked ahead, what would be on the schedule for this week. And I, know, I knew it was the week after my ordination service, uh, which uh, thank you all for your support in that. Uh, that meant the world to me. Uh, so I looked ahead on the schedule. And I said, what passage, let's see what passage uh, this Sunday falls on. And it's chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, which says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for knowing as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. And so I was very tempted to not preach this passage because it seemed too too planned for me. Uh, And and so I was really wrestling with that. I even talked to Andy about it and a a couple of my friends. And and I, I was ready to preach another passage. And then I really just had to stick with the schedule. You know, I, I just had to understand, you know, I, I set the schedule in place several months ago, and and uh, God knew the timing of how everything would work out. And so I couldn't, uh, I wouldn't feel right about changing, uh, trying to change that. So that's our passage this morning. But let me pray for us before we read through this, and we'll get started. Father, help us to see Christ in this passage. Help us to see Christ in all, in every piece of scripture. It all points to him. It all points to the, the, the saving message that is the gospel. That as we are all sinners, we have all sinned and fall short of glory. That there is this great gift of eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. So as we study this passage, I pray that you help us to see Christ in this passage. Help us to understand uh, what it means to call ourselves Christians and to live obediently and to live faithfully while in the midst of still messing up day to day. So, Father, we pray for your blessing over this passage as we study it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read this together. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for knowing as such that we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, and whoever does not stumble what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. I want to take you guys along this journey uh, of where we've been in James so far in the last few months, of how we got to this point, uh, is understanding this, these two verses in its context, of what was leading up to James now writing about, let not many of us become teachers. And James 1 starts off with uh, what I call the the three spiritual tests that James lays out for us. And these spiritual tests are designed where if you were to measure up someone's life, someone who professes to be a Christian, professes the name of Christ, you would measure, you could measure their life up to these three spiritual tests. It could be used as a way of understanding, is their faith, in fact, a true saving faith or not? 
The first test that James mentions is the test of trials, the perseverance of trials. And no matter what is going on in a Christian's life, a true believer, they will indeed persevere through trials. And the way James explains is that they will seek wisdom from God during those trials. That's a way that we persevere in our trials, is when you're watching a Christian's life, where are they seeking their wisdom from? When tragedy hits, or when things go wrong at work, or things are just happening in the marriage, where are they seeking their wisdom and their help from? How are they persevering through that trial? Are they seeking God's wisdom or seeking worldly wisdom? The second spiritual test he mentions is the idea of resisting temptation. That if someone professes the name of Christ, it's going to be very visible if they are in fact resisting temptation or constantly giving into it. If they're resisting temptation, even though they may fail time to time, there's, they, they are ex, uh, exemplifying true faith by resisting temptation to sin. If they're constantly giving in to temptation and there's no repentance, no effort whatsoever to, or to even acknowledge sin in their life, there's a good chance their faith is not sincere. And the last one is probably one of the more difficult ones, is this idea of how people respond to God's truth. When we learn the Word of God, as someone who professes the name of Christ, and, and they read the Word of God, are they going to uh, acknowledge that it is, in fact, truth? Or are they always going to uh, object against, have objections against the Word of God, saying, well, I don't believe that part of Scripture, but I just believe these parts. And, and so these spiritual tests James lays out, and the, the reason why that's so important is because in James chapter 2, he goes into this idea of faith without works is dead. And it give you this idea of, of just how serious James is, uh, because right at the end of, um, or during chapter 2, he starts off this, about the seriousness of one sin. This idea that whoever stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking the entire law of God. And the reason why he went into this, because there was, they obviously had an issue, the people he was writing to had an issue of showing favoritism within the body of Christ. So Andy uh, gave a, a really good example the, uh, yesterday about people helping him move and how the, the body of Christ was there for him and his family. But how tragic would it be if the church came around to help the pastor's family but no one else in the family, in the body of Christ? That would be a tragic, be a tragic situation. And that's what the struggle was in, in whoever the audience was that James was writing to, that they had some issue of showing favoritism towards the richer people in the church and, showing, and against the poorer people. And James' whole idea of pointing this out is that that sin of favoritism is just, you are just as guilty of breaking God's law as any murderer and adulterer by which the law of God in the Old Testament was punishable by being stoned to death. So there are a lot of people making light of this, that, well, showing favoritism is not a big deal, but James is pointing out that the seriousness of one sin, that one sin, hypothetically, if someone only sinned once in their whole life, they still as, are in much of need of Christ's blood on the cross for their forgiveness as anyone else, as anyone who committed murder or anyone who commits adultery. And the reason why that's important to understand is because he goes into this next section in chapter 2 about how faith without works is dead. To give you an idea of just how strongly he feels about this and how true this is, he, he uses terms like hearers of the word and not doers. You might remember this from our, the last time we preached in James. Hearers are deluded. That if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, they are deluded. They are deluded in what? They are deluded in thinking that they're actually saved. 
because they are hearers of the word, but they don't actually do anything according to the word. He, he goes down further in James in chapter 1. He says that those who ha- are claimed to be religious people, but yet they don't bridle their tongues, which relates to our passage to this morning, they deceive their own hearts. Once again, what are they deceived about? They are deceived that they're actually saved because they are placed their faith in self-righteousness instead of the righteousness of Christ. And then chapter 2 goes on, faith without works cannot save. He uses a term, he says, he says, what use is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no, that faith cannot save someone to have faith and not have works. He goes on to say, faith without works is dead, in verse 17. Faith without works is useless, utterly useless. He goes on to give examples of Abraham and Rahab in the Old Testament, how it's by their works, their faith was justified, and it was perfected. And then finally he ends, the very last verse of uh, chapter 2, is faith without works is dead. So before we get into this idea of uh, faith without works is dead, we have to define what works are, right? Because if we're going to say faith without works is absolutely dead and cannot save someone, we better have an understanding of what works are. Uh, I kind of run with this definition myself. Is I, works are an external evidence of faith. External evidence of faith. We have several examples of this so far in James. Those who persevere through their trials seeking God's wisdom. That's very external. You can tell if someone is seeking God's wisdom and what they're going through just by who they're talking to, what their, uh, uh, what their sources of information are, who they're going to for help. Those are very external ways of, uh, of examples of works, of someone's faith. Resisting temptation, very external. You could tell if someone's constantly giving to sin or they're actually resisting it. What their lifestyle is like, what their convictions are. How someone responds to God's word, very external. You could see people reading the word. You could see people obeying the word. You could see people in a room like this, learning God's word and, and seeking deeper understanding of his word. Those are all external evidences of faith. A couple of examples, other examples that James goes through is this idea of showing compassion. We, we just talked about the favoritism issue. A very external evidence of faith is if it actually changes your heart in a way where you actually show compassion for the needy instead of uh, uh, shunning away from them and showing favoritism to those who might benefit you more. Those are external evidences of faith. Those are what works are. And this can be a confusing issue, this idea of faith without works is dead, cannot save you. Because if you get into legalism, we get into this idea that, well, if someone's not showing works, uh, is it their works that save them, or are their works proving that they're saved? And we can know this for sure, that, that without works, you can, you can be saved, because we know that the criminal on, on the cross next to Jesus, who did something that was worthy of being put to death next to, next to Jesus, showed compassion for Jesus. He said, he said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said back to him, surely I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus gave him the affirmation, the confirmation, that he, would, he was saved. He displayed a true faith in who Jesus was. He had an understanding of who Jesus was. Did he have to pray a prayer of salvation? No. 
Did he have to do a bunch of good works and, and do all these things to prove that he was a Christian? No, he didn't have to do any of that. We know that in Romans 10, 9, it says, it is that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your what? Your heart, right? You will be saved. So we know people can be saved without works. The understanding of this idea of without faith without works is dead is the understanding of, it's the assumption that if you go on continuing living your life and there are no works to display this profession of faith, that's where you're in trouble. This is why hospital ministries are so important. Because that is the last effort for someone to place their faith in Christ. Because there is no hope beyond life on earth. This is why it's so important for hospital chaplains uh, to, to have the role that they have. Because we know that that is the last, absolute last chance they have. If someone receives faith in Christ on their deathbed, do they need to all of a sudden, do they have to be baptized right there in the hospital bed? Do they have to prove themselves that their faith is genuine by, by getting up out of their hospital bed and, and doing all these nice things for people before they die? No, they don't have to do any of that. This idea of faith without works is dead is the assumption that when you profess the name of Christ and you continue living, God's shown his grace to you by allowing you to live more, there, there will be works that are evident externally, that people can see, that will be visible to those around you. So we know that people can be saved without works. We know that for sure. So when we say faith that works is dead, it's this idea that you are still living and God has given you way more time to live on this earth and what's going to come out of your profession of faith. And that's going to show whether or not your faith or that person's faith is in fact genuine. Some of the more difficult issues that I think we tend to miss is when tragedy happens, we tend to be a little biased, right? We tend to be biased in assuming someone's salvation many times. And we know that we didn't have as many conversations we hope, as we should have had with that person. Or maybe we never had a conversation with those people about who Christ is or what the gospel is. We had another school shooting, right? Liberty High School has had two suicide deaths this year already. It's important to understand the theology that is only through faith in Christ that we're saved. Jesus touched on this uh, issue when people asked him about people who had recently died and been killed. And they said, were these people worse sinners than, uh, than other... Did, what did these people do to deserve this? Were they, did they sin really poorly? And this is in Luke chapter 13. And Jesus responded this way. He, he gave an example of a tower that fell on a bunch of other people. And he said, were these people worse sinners than, than they? No, they weren't. And I'm summing it up. But essentially Jesus said, this is why it's so important for everyone to repent and believe as soon as possible. Because you never know when tragedy is around the corner. You never know when your life will be taken from you. You never know. And so in the instances like school shootings, for those in that high school, who were tragically murdered, their life was taken against their will, if their faith was not in Christ, they are suffering eternally for their sin. They are not saved because a tragedy happened to them. 
And I'm not saying this to insult them. I'm saying this that this is the reason why we need to be very proactive about preaching the gospel. Because people are not saved because a tragedy may happen to them. They're saved when they have an understanding of what Christ has done for them so that they might be saved when that day of tragedy comes. Another implication that this theology has, this profession that we are saved through faith in Christ alone, is that the, that murderer, you know, many of those school shooters are still alive. That they have the same hope in Christ. That they could have a true conversion, a true saving faith in Christ, and be saved from their sin. Be saved from the murders that they committed. That's what the gospel means. There is no special place in hell for anyone. There's only one hell. The same hell where all the demons and Satan will be tormented for eternity in the lake of fire. There is no special place in hell for people that commit certain crimes. That's a phrase I think many Christians use but should not even be in their vocabulary. Because the opposite is true as well, that there is no special place in heaven for, for people who are particularly good. It says that we are all co-heirs with Christ. We are all going to be transformed into the glory of God. He's, we're going to all be made in the image of his son. So we have to recognize that, that the importance of preaching the gospel at all times. We had uh, someone share with us in, in our youth ministry, uh, a man from our own church whose father was murdered, shot three times in his head while he was sleeping. And he shared this with our youth ministry about the, how the change that happened in his heart. He shared how, growing up, he was all for the death penalty. He had no problem with it. And this isn't anything for or against the death penalty. This is just his personal testimony. But in that moment, the man who murdered his father, all of a sudden, uh, this man, he wasn't for the death penalty in this situation. Because he saw that it was more important for this murderer to be saved than for him to be put to death. And he wrote a letter to this murderer, a letter explaining the gospel. That's what happens in our hearts when we're saved from our sin. God changes our hearts. He changes our compassion for others because we recognize that we are in much of need of Christ as anyone else, as any murderer or adulterer. The only reason I'm spending so much time on this is because as we get to our passage in chapter 3, this idea of let not many of you become teachers. It's because I think teaching is one of those things that can be done. I don't know this for sure about where James is heading uh, in his mind when he was writing these things. But teaching is one of those things that can be done without being accompanied by works. We could teach all kinds of subjects without the accompaniment of works. Math teachers could teach math while at home or in private they use a calculator, right? They could teach kids how to add, how to multiply, and all these things, and all the tricks for all these things, but when in their own life, their own private life, they use a calculator for all those things. Teaching is one of those things that can be done easily without the accompaniment of works. I think that's why this is coming after the section when James is speaking so hardly on this, that faith without works is dead, and let not many of you become teachers, because there is a temptation for people to want to teach, especially God's word, but not the accountability of, being, of, of people watching their lives or actually practicing what they preach. We hear that a lot, too. 
I think as parents, we could easily abuse the God-given authority that we have over our children by, by saying things like, do as I say, not what I do. And maybe we don't even have to say those things. Maybe our actions speak those words, right? Do as I say, not what I do. So I think teaching is one of those things that could easily be done without any works being associated with that person teaching. And there's a great chance of hypocrisy when it comes to teaching the Word of God. Let's get into our text. James introduces this next work, godly speech. Godly speech. It's another external evidence of your faith. We saw that earlier in chapter 1. If someone claims to be religious, they claim to be Christian, yet they don't bridle their tongue. They are deceived. There is a big problem if for those who claim to be Christians, and yet their language is filthy. Their language is slandering. They are known as gossips. They are known as being unsafe people to talk to. There is a big conflict there. Godly speech is another external evidence of faith that your language will be changed. The way you talk about people will be changed. The way you talk to people will be changed. The way you talk to people when you're angry will be changed. All those things will be changed with true saving faith. So here we have this first statement. Let not many of you become teachers. There's a variety of teaching positions in the church alone. There's pastors and teachers. There are children's workers Youth workers, they're all uh, volunteer positions many times. We have Bible study leaders. Uh, People within the church might host a Bible study in their home, and they might not have a formal teaching position in the church, but they are serving in the ministry by hosting a Bible study. Parents. Parents don't have a choice. They're teachers by default because they are ordained by God to be the primary form of discipleship in their children's lives. We see that in the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy 6, when God says, you are to teach your children these things when you rise up, as you walk along the path, as you lay down, all those things throughout the day, all day. Parents have a God-given authority over their children to be the primary teachers in their lives. So they don't have a choice in this. There is, well, I'm a parent, but I'm not a teacher. No, parents are teachers. And there's evangelism. Everyone in here is going to teach scripture in one way or another whether you're a parent or whether there's someone a loved one in your life who you want to bring to knowledge of the gospel of jesus christ you are essentially teaching them if you're explaining the gospel to them so your life is now on a a, a kind of a pedestal to where you are an example of what christ is supposed to look like in a person's life and now you're trying to communicate the gospel to that person so you are, in a, in essentially, a teacher to that person. So we all are teachers in different ways. So he's not just talking about formal teaching positions in the church. Certainly they have that. Back then, any respected individual, respected man in the body of Christ could uh, come up and, and read the Word of God publicly and could, try to, and could teach on it. That's what Jesus did when, in, in his youth. As many people, many rabbis were coming up and reading scripture, Jesus did that as well. And so they had a custom in their culture that if you're a well-respected individual, you could just come up and, and read scriptures. And that would be seen as a position of authority and power. 
And certainly we have that in our culture. I see all the time people sharing quotes from celebrities and, and athletes, and, and they may or may not be Christian, but for some reason, just because they're well-known, it gives them more, uh, uh, more respect as far as what they say, even though they may not even be a Christian. What makes them more qualified to say nice things just because they're well-known? Are they well-known for what they say, or are they well-known for what sport they play? I think we don't take that into consideration enough. If someone claims to be a Christian, we automatically say, oh, they're a Christian and they do this. Let's, uh, uh, let's put them on a pedestal. We have no idea what their life is like. We have no idea what they do in their private time. We see what they, how they perform at their workplace, essentially, and then that's it. We think that because people are good actors and they sell a lot of movies, we tend to think that their quotes have more meaning than quotes out of straight out of Scripture. So let not many of you become teachers. Uh, last Sunday, I shared the statement before I prayed that there's many times that I doubted my call into pastoral ministry, and last Sunday was one of those times because of the amount of accountability that I received from the body of Christ. And, and so someone asked me about what I meant from that. I met with someone this week, and they asked me, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, it simply meant that the amount of pressure, the pressure is great to be, you know, I've been teaching God's Word since I was 18, and to be formally recognized in a way that I was formally recognized last Sunday is the same or similar to getting married in front of all my friends and family. That the idea of getting married in front of all my friends and family was this idea that they're there to hold us accountable. When we go through problems in our marriage, we should be able to count on our friends and family to call or to talk to you because they were there to witness the vows that we made before the Lord. And that's what it felt like last Sunday. And it was intimidating. Because I knew I was going to preach this passage, not many of you become teachers, knowing such will incur stricter judgment. And I knew all that already, going into that. I knew all that. But it just hit me in the moment of the emotion and the amount of love and support we received last Sunday. It was one of those moments I doubted my call. I said, can, can all these people can rely on me to do what I'm supposed to do now that I'm formally recognized? There's a preacher, a famous pastor, that uh, he's known all around the world. And, and this is another issue about uh, teaching in the church is that a lot of times we could depend on YouTube videos and online sermons for us to get all of our nourishment spiritually. You say, oh, I love this pastor online. I watch him all the time. So instead of going to church on Sundays, I just watch him every Sunday. It's just like I'm at church. Or people say uh, that they spend so much time studying theology or watching videos on YouTube that they have such a great understanding. And there's a lot of good teaching and preaching on YouTube and online sermons that there's, there's a good use for that. But the concern there is that you have no idea what those people are like outside that video. You have no idea what those pastors are like outside that mega church setting. When they step off that stage, you never see them again. This is the concern that James has. Not many of you become teachers for you'll incur stricter judgment. And so be aware of that temptation of settling for just teaching and preaching without any relationship, without any confirmation of seeing what their life is like outside those teachings, 
what they might teach might be good, but is it be a, being accompanied by actions and by works? You don't know. So use those as a supplement to your spiritual growth, but don't ever depend on those solely. But this preacher uh, was complimented by someone, and they're complimenting him by saying, you are such a good man. You are such a man of God. And he was in another country, and they were translating for him. And he said, well, he said, thank you, but how do you know? Do you see me with my children? Do you see me with my wife? Do you see me at home? Uh, and he was being nice to this person, but he was making this very point that they should not so much depend on him as being a godly person, but depend on their local church and their local pastor that they could talk to and get to know. So let not many of you become teachers. And he gives us this warning, he gives us the reason, it's because for knowing as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. This judgment was talked about in chapter 2 right above, this idea of judgment will be merciless without mercy for those who show no mercy. That there is a very harsh judgment for those who claim to be Christians, and yet their language, the way they treat other people is not changed. There is a very very serious judgment for those people and the fact that they are still condemned in their sin. That they are walking and talking, or they are, are on the outside, they're having this mask as a Christian. They profess the name of Christ, but yet there is no true change going on in their heart. That's the warning here, is that for knowing as such, those who teach will have an even stricter judgment than that. Uh, Matthew 18, Jesus gave an example of this to beware of causing, in the context, it was a little child. He said, you must become a little child to come into the kingdom. He said, for anyone who causes someone like this to stumble or to sin, they'd be better off being thrown into uh, the water with a heavy millstone around their neck. In other words, it's better for them to suffer a horrible, quick death than to await for the eternal judgment that's coming for them. Because they are misleading the people of God. They're misleading his disciples. They're, they're leading them in a, in a sinful direction. And so there's a very serious judgment for those who teach disobediently to the, God, to the word of God. We will incur a stricter judgment. This is why in 1 Timothy, one of the uh, qualifications for a pastor or elder is someone who is not a new convert. They are not a new baby Christian. And it doesn't give us a solid example of what, how many years is that? Okay, God, how many months do you need to be a Christian? How many years? We don't have that. But we do have a lot of other things, such as external evidences of faith and sound doctrine and sound theology. All those give you a clue of if someone is a new Christian or not. And so for this reason, that's why pastors should not be new Christians. It gives us this other statement. We all stumble in many ways. Going on in verse 2 now. We'll, we'll incur a stricter judgment indeed, those who teach. But now James is saying, we all stumble in many ways. He's pointing out that even teachers will stumble. Teachers will make mistakes with their words, with their speech. Maybe it might not be malicious, but it might not be correct. There is a great fear in preaching and teaching, even as I stand here, that what if I don't explain something correctly? What if I misrepresent the Word of God? We all stumble many ways. And James knows the importance of stumbling because he just made the statement, if you stumble even at one point, 
you're guilty of the entire law. But now he's reassuring even teachers, saying, we all stumble in many ways. So even those who teach the Word of God, we stumble as well. And so when we have this idea that teachers will incur a stricter judgment, yes, that's true, but we also we all stumble in many ways. There is grace in that. And as we stumble in many ways, we should, the teachers, in whatever form, whether you're a parent or you are trying to minister to someone in your life, or you are a volunteer worker somewhere in the church, and you're responsible for teaching the Word of God to someone else, you are held to a stricter judgment, but you will stumble in that. But that's just more reason for anyone who teaches to be more ready and willing to be repentant. To recognize that we all, I stumble in many ways. I, I do a Monday morning quarterback kind of a situation with all my teachings where I, I go back over my teachings and say, uh, thankfully we have them recorded and I listen to them. I say, okay, what did I not explain very well? And there's many, many times that I repent. I say, I wish I'd said that better or that did not sound right. I, I know what I was trying to say, but the way I said it did not come out right. And now I, I, I fear that someone might have a misunderstanding of God's word. And there is a lot of repentance that should go into teaching and preaching. Because there's a lot of fear that goes into it as well. For we all stumble in many ways. So for those of you who teach at all, if you're a parent or you're ministering to someone or anything like that, uh, I'll speak to parents specifically, I guess. But when was the last time you apologized to your spouse for something you said? When was the last time you apologized to your children? That do you feel justified every time you use you speak out in anger against your children? Or do you know that you stumbled, that that was a stumbling moment for you, and you take the time to let your child know that you had stumbled in your words? It doesn't matter if your children are young or grown. This still happens. When was the last time you apologized to the Lord for your language, for something you said out of anger or anything else? Maybe you gossiped? When was the last time, I see this sometimes, when was the last time you might have apologized for something you used on your social media post? I'm pretty encouraged when I, have, when I know friends of mine who are Christians. I'm not so encouraged when they make mistakes in what they post, but I am encouraged when they post an apology afterwards. And not only do they apologize for it publicly because they posted something publicly, but they also remove it from their social media post. That is great. Social media posts, you can remove stuff so that people don't see anything. If there's a picture posted that you shouldn't have posted, you can remove that picture. And within that shows repentance. I am discouraged when people don't apologize for anything, they say. The things are posted publicly. And by the way, when we have, when adults have social media, it means that many times there's a whole spectrum of people that could see what you post. Yeah, you might be private and all that kind of stuff. But there's still uh, this idea that a lot of people think that no one really looks at their page or it's not that big a deal. But uh, working with teenagers, they like to search stuff out. They like to look for ammo. There is such a thing called cyberbullying that is very serious, that teenagers take very seriously, that people commit suicide as a result of cyberbullying. Because teenagers live their lives on these things. And so whatever adults post, they will see it. 
and they will use against adults many times. Now we get back to the final verse as we close this up. James ends this by saying, if anyone does not stumble in what they say, he is a normal person. He's a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. James just said that we all stumble in many ways. And now he's saying, if someone hypothetically manages to never sin and never make a mistake in what they say, they have enough self-control to actually not sin at all. That's how powerful the tongue is. That James doesn't understands that. He understands that even teachers will stumble in many ways. We will make mistakes. Teachers and parents and the like, anyone who teaches will make mistakes. Because if anyone never makes a mistake in what they say, it means that they could potentially have entire control of their whole body and never sin. That's the power of the tongue. To give you an idea, a preview of how James ends uh, goes throughout chapter 3, he describes how powerful the tongue is. He calls the, the tongue, it has the power to control the entire body. It's a fire. It defiles the entire body. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. The tongue is actually set on fire by hell itself. This is how powerful the tongue is. Jesus made this statement about the tongue that whatever comes out of your mouth proceeds from your heart. Or whatever proceeds from your mouth or comes from your heart. It's not what you eat that makes you dirty because in the context, they were, their Jews were, had this misunderstanding that if you eat with dirty hands or eat things that they thought were unclean, then you were unclean in God's eyes. Well, the real issue was the uncleanness in their hearts. They might have had clean hands, but they didn't have a clean heart. And, God was, and Jesus is making this point that it's what comes out of your guy's mouth is what defiles you. So Jesus, or James wholeheartedly agrees with Jesus' teaching on this. That's why in Ephesians 4 it says, let some unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Do you guys know that passage? Let a little bit come out of your mouth. It says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Meaning every time you stumble in your language, you are sinning. And when you stumble at one point, you are guilty of breaking the entire law. This is the significance of Christ dying for all of our sin. Every time we stumble, every time we sin, it's, it's, it's quickly forgiven by God because our faith is in Christ alone, not in our language, not in how, many, how little swear words we use or, or how much we've changed from the past. Our faith is not in how much we've changed. Our faith is what caused that change. Our faith is in Christ alone. There's this one statement about the tongue uh, that someone said, it's the greatest concealed weapon that any human being has because everyone has one, but you don't need a license to use it. We have freedom of speech in America, which we uh, love to have as Christians. We could worship him freely. We could pray in public, do all these great things. But in other countries, it's the very tongue that gets Christians killed. By their very profession of faith in other Christians, uh, in other countries, it's their profession of faith by the use of their tongue and their words that gets them killed because they're breaking the local laws of atheism being the main uh, religion there or, or just facing persecution against Christianity. That's how powerful the tongue is, is that even professing to be a Christian in other countries is taken so seriously that they are many times killed 
just for talking about Christ. That's the power of the tongue. That's the power of speech. And James wants us to get this idea that every word that comes out of your mouth as a Christian matters. Every stumbling block matters because Christ died for that stumbling. Every word matters. We'll just end here. This idea of uh, living a Christian life. I, I want. Uh, there's a statement uh, uh, I was kind of using with the youth ministry this week, and, and I hope it works in this context, and hope you, hope you guys get the understanding that I hope it takes. But living the Christian life is not about the absence of sin, but it's about the presence of obedience and repentance. So as we stumble in many ways, there is going to be obedience and repentance to go along with the stumbling. Whereas before Christ, there was zero obedience and zero repentance in that person's life. It's all sin. It's all stumbling. That's the difference between not living the Christian life and living the Christian life. Is that as we stumble, as I stumble, even as a teacher, there's going to be evidence of obedience and repentance to go along with all that stumbling. Because my faith is in Christ alone, not in my ability to skip over all these stumbling blocks. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll do communion. Father, we thank you for you knew every time that we were going to stumble long before we were even created. You knew of the great need that we would have. Even if there was ever someone that existed that only sinned once, which I'm pretty confident that's never going to exist, but even for that person, if they had only sinned once, it was still necessary for Christ to die on the cross for their sin, for them to be forgiven, for them to be able to call themselves a child of God, for them to be able to uh, feel worthy, to be worthy of, of coming into your presence of even, or even having a fellowship relationship with you to even talk to you, that you make us clean by the blood of Christ and by that very thing, we are able to talk to you as we talk to you now. We have no business even trying to talk to you if we are still guilty of our sin, if we have no forgiveness. We don't deserve to even, to even look at you or even attempt to come into your presence. So we thank you for the blood of Christ that, that washes away our sin. We stumble in many ways, but you lift us up each and every time we stumble. It is by your grace we are sustained. And so, Father, we, uh, as we come to this time of the Lord's Supper, Help us reflect on all our stumbling. Help us reflect on just even one stumble. We are to reflect upon the body and the blood of Christ, your son Jesus Christ, and what he did for us. And to weep over our stumbling, and to weep over it, and to have those tears wiped away uh, by you, by your forgiveness. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.